1 Samuel 21 and 22. Let's just pray together. Father, your word is life. And as we, each one of us, listen to your word this morning, may we take something from it. May your Holy Spirit give us something from these two chapters that we can take and that we can apply to our lives and that will change the way we live. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, 1 Samuel 21 and 22. But before you turn there, I want you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 2. We're looking back just a bit, and you'll understand later on why we're doing this. Do you remember Eli, the prophet, right at the beginning of 1 Samuel, his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas? Hophni and Phinehas were assigned priestly duties, but they took advantage of their positions as priests, and many times they violated God's law. And here's what happened. 1 Samuel 2, verse 27. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, and now down to verse 31. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. So just keep those verses in mind as we're getting closer to the end of our teaching time this morning. Now to 1 Samuel 21, verse 1. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I sent you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us always when I go out on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread here but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Dob the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you here a spear or a sword at hand? For I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it. For there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. For years, as I have read this paragraph, it has always puzzled me. I've looked at it, and I've always said to myself, why would David deceive a priest? It doesn't make sense to me. And it doesn't sound like the David that we've come to know as we've been working our way through 1 Samuel. There has been a lot of deception in the book. We saw Samuel deceiving Saul when he anointed David to be king. We saw Michael, David's wife, deceiving Saul. We've even seen Jonathan, the prince, deceiving his father Saul on behalf of David. 
So what's going on in these verses? Is David really deceiving a priest? Doesn't fit the pattern of the book. There's been a lot of deception, but it's always been deception aimed at Saul, never at anyone else. And when I started looking at this paragraph in that light, in deception being aimed at Saul, this paragraph made sense to me for the first time. And here's what I think is happening in this paragraph. There is deception here, but it's not David deceiving Ahimelech. It's David and Ahimelech together trying to deceive Saul. And why is that happening? Because David and Ahimelech are working together. Now, it's interesting that so many people believe already that David will be the next king. Samuel anointed him to be the next king. Michael married him, I think, believing that he would be the next king. Jonathan has stated that David would be the next king. And even last week, Matt talked about Saul, implying that David would be the next king. Many have aligned themselves with David, even though they know that there may be reprisals from Saul. And that's the scenario that's playing out here. David and Ahimelech know each other. They don't support Saul's kingship. And when David shows up at Nob totally unexpected, Ahimelech is terrified. But not because he's afraid of Saul, uh, sorry, of David. It is because he's afraid of Saul. He's afraid that the collaboration between the two of them will be discovered and reported back to Saul. So Ahimelech, in the early words of this paragraph, is trying to warn David that there's a problem here. David looks around, sees what the problem is, picks up on it, and builds on the warning that he gets from Ahimelech. And David and Ahimelech together are trying to deceive someone who's present there. They're trying to conceal the facts that they know each other and that they're working together. Look back at verse 7. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Dob the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. They both know that Dog is part of Saul's inner circle. So everything that they're saying here is meant to deceive him. They don't want him reporting back to Saul that the two of them are conspiring together. So David isn't lying to Ahimelech. Together, they're trying to deceive Dog. The king didn't send David. David has no men. That doesn't come until the next chapter. So he obviously doesn't need food to take to his men. All of that is part of that deception. Even David's asking for a weapon is to emphasize for Dog that he's on the king's business, even though he isn't. And I think also, and we're going to see this later, he sees Dog as a threat. David asks for a weapon. Ahimelech mentions a sword. And then he says, the sword that you use to kill Goliath. And I think that's meant also to intimidate Dog. Ahimelech is saying something like, this is David, the mighty soldier. Don't mess with him. And all the time, Dog is standing there and listening. He's one of Saul's officers. He's loyal to Saul. He doesn't want to be here at Nob. He's likely here because he's being punished for breaking God's law. And then look at the first part of verse 10. And David rose and fled that day from Saul. Saul wasn't even there. It was Dog that there was there, and Dog is Saul's representative. So he's really fleeing from Dog, but Dog is there on behalf of Saul. I want you to think for a minute about David. Mid-20s, he's gone from being a shepherd to the killer of, the Goliath, of Goliath, the giant. 
He was the captain in Saul's army. He was the commander of the royal bodyguard. He's the king's musician. He's the best friend of Saul's son. He's married to Saul's daughter. And now all of this has been taken from him. David is desperate. Samuel is gone. He has no more contact with Samuel. Jonathan has gone home. Michael's been taken from him. He has possibly unintentionally betrayed his friend Ahimelech. And Saul is trying to kill him. In fact, Matt last week mentioned three times where Saul tries to kill David. David is all alone. He's totally on his own. And look at what he does. Verse 10. David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let the spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David is so low that he flees to a Philistine city, a city of the enemy, to the city of Gath. Do you remember why Gath is famous? It's the home of Goliath. That's where Goliath came from. You can just imagine people from Gath saying, I'm from Gath. I knew the family of Goliath. I remember my dad sometimes would say, I'm from Looseland. I went to school with Jimmy Patterson's family. Just these little claims to fame. Our claim to fame, beachcombers. And many towns have their claim to fame. And for Gath, it was their hometown hero, Goliath. And here comes David into their town, the killer of their hero, wearing their hero's sword strapped around his waist. Just imagine, why would David flee to Gath? One, Saul can't get him there. He's away from Saul. But secondly, it was common practice in that day for a fugitive to seek refuge from his pursuer's enemies. Just like the old saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. David arrives at Gath. He has an audience with King Achish. He's granted asylum. And that's why the officers of King Achish are so upset with him, because they knew that David was their enemy. They knew that he had killed Goliath. They knew that he had killed his ten thousands. They knew the Israeli number one hit song of a few years earlier. And David is afraid. He knew he was in trouble. And then trouble came. Okay, we're going to do a bit of a digression here. Keep your finger in 1 Samuel and flip over to Psalm 56. We looked at these verses earlier. And if you look at the title of this psalm, it includes these words. When the Philistines seized him in Gath. This psalm is David's journal entry of his reflections back on his time in the city of Gath. First he was granted asylum, then he was seized and imprisoned. And many Bible scholars say that David's time in Gath was the lowest time of his life. He has no one. He's far from family. He has no contact with Samuel. Jonathan is out of his life. Michael is out of his life. Ahimelech possibly betrayed. None of his comrades in arms are with him. All of his friends are gone. 
he has no one. Have you ever been in a place like this where you could identify with what David is going through? Your enemies are out to get you. They're closing in on you. All your friends are gone. Some have been taken away from you. Others have deserted you. Your family's not supporting you. It's not a nice place to be. Anne and I were once in a place like that. We were attacked by people we trusted. None of our friends came forward to help us. I asked family to help us, and they said no. One friend helped us for a little bit, and then he too was gone. Anne and I faced that whole ordeal alone. It felt like the two of us against the world, and it almost broke us. But at least we had each other. David didn't even have that. Have you ever been in a place like that, all alone, under attack? Some of the people who are attacking you are people you thought you could trust, people you thought were your friends. Look at what David writes in his journal. Psalm 56, verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. David is under incredible attack as he's there in Gath. And look at his response. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? See what's going on here? David is learning that he's not alone. Even in the most severe trial, he's learning that he can trust in God. And why can he trust in God? Because our God is a God who does what he says he will do. Our God is a God who keeps his promises. A God who is trustworthy. A God who is faithful. Like the old song, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Through these difficult, violent times, David is learning to trust God. And it was the same for Anne and me as we went through that hard time. We learned to trust in God. And we leaned on God more than we ever had in our lives before that. And God used the horror of what happened to us to bring us closer to him. And that's what's happening here with David. He is drawing closer to God. He's learning to trust in God no matter what's happening around him. His faith is growing. And that's why in his journal he could say, what can flesh do to me? Or another version, what can mere mortals do to me? David is learning that God is faithful. And he continues on in his journal. Verse 9. This I know that God is for me. Verse 10, in God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? When God is for me, I don't need to be afraid. God is faithful. He will not break his promises. And even when I'm under attack, mere people can't hurt me. Like what Jesus said, come to me, all you who are labor and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. No matter how severe the trial that we're going through, we can turn to Jesus. We can trust in Jesus, and he will give us rest, a rest that we will feel deep down in our inner being. People can hurt my body. People can hurt my mind but they can't take away that rest that I have because of my relationship with Jesus. Okay, back to David. He's in Gath. He's been seized. He's been imprisoned. 
He's been dragged before Achish. He knows he can't escape. He's surrounded by a whole city of people who want him dead. And then David has this brilliant idea. And perhaps it's from God, because earlier in his journal he had written, then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. David is calling on God for help. And God answers. And David pretends to be insane, to be mad. And here we have more deception against an enemy of David. And David does two things. First of all, he commits vandalism by defacing public property. And then he demeans his own person by defacing his beard. And in that culture, a beard was an important symbol of one's manhood. So to desecrate one's beard with one's own spittle was an obvious sign of derangement. And when we get to second, cha second chapter of, or sorry, second Samuel chapter 10, we're going to deal with the story where desecrating someone's beard can actually be justification for going to war. That's how serious this is. And David's deception is successful. And Achish basically says, I've got enough nutcases around me, why do I need another one? And David escapes. Down to um, 1 Samuel 22. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adalam. And when his brothers and all his father's household heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him more than 400 men. David's again on the run. He's trusted God. God is faithful. He's seen God work a miracle as he escaped Gath. But he's still fleeing Saul. And we now learn, so is his family. So much for Saul's earlier promise that he would honor the family of the man who killed Goliath, that he would give that family tax-free status. Instead, here's David's family on the run. And they flee to David as they flee from Saul. And others follow. Men in all kinds of trouble come to David. They run from Saul and they flee to David because they see in David something that they can't see in Saul. They're totally dissatisfied with life. And in David, they see the promise of something better. David is here a beautiful picture of Jesus. You can ask yourself, am I unhappy with life? Am I distraught? Do I want more than life is presently offering me? Just like those who came to David were asking those questions. Then we flee to Jesus. And what will Jesus offer us? Here's the words of Jesus. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus offers us such an amazing peace of heart and of mind that we don't need to fear anything that the world will throw at us. Like David said in his journal, what can mere people do to me? Men and their families flee to David to find refuge. And when we flee to Jesus, he will be our refuge and he will give us peace. Will all our problems instantly go away? No. David and his men are still on the run from Saul. But with Jesus, we will know such an amazing peace that even in the midst of the most severe trial, we will have rest.
no matter what's going on around us. Now, in this paragraph, there's another detail that I just want to pull on for a minute here. Remember Saul's story? Remember his ascension to the throne? Saul immediately went from being the insecure son of a farmer to being the king of the nation Israel. But God orchestrated things so that it wasn't like that for David. God is allowing David here to learn an important lesson that will be very valuable to him when he does become king. See, God gives us gifts, and we call them the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And then he gives us opportunities both to learn how to use those gifts and then to use them in ministry. David has the gift of leadership, and he began to use this gift way back when he was shepherding his father's flock of sheep. Sheep are not easy to look after. And now God moves him from sheep to the next level. And God gives David the opportunity to lead, first of all, his family. And remember, his family didn't respect him. And 400 hard and frustrated men and their families. And as David led this motley group of people, he became a better leader. He, what he learned here in the wilderness made him a better king. He's learning to use the gift that God has given him so that when the time comes, he will use his gift well. So what gift has God given you? Every single one of us who is a child of God has been given a gift by God. We all have a gift. And God will give us opportunities both to learn how to use those gifts and then he'll give us opportunities for ministry where we can use those gifts for others. Because when we exercise the gifts that God has given us, the church is stronger. And I find it sad that so many Christians don't use the gift or the gifts that God has given them. And because of that, they never reach their full potential, and the church misses out on what God has called that person to do. So let me encourage you. Use the gift that God has given you. And if you don't know what it is, talk to someone. Talk to Matt. Talk to someone in a position of leadership and explore this whole area with them. Okay, for Samuel 22, verse 3. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother stay with you till I know what God's will or what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Herod. David's concerned about his aging parents. They're too old to be running from Saul. So he takes them to Moab, to the home of Ruth. And remember, Ruth was David's father's grandmother. So he's basically taking them home, asking for asylum, and asylum is granted. But look in verse 3 at David's comment. Till I know what God will do for me. No matter what David is facing, no matter what's going on in his life, he always sought a word from God. He always wanted to know God's leading in his life. And out of nowhere, a prophet appears and basically says to David, go back to Judah. And David's response, immediate obedience. How do you respond when God talks to you? Do you respond immediately? Or do you hesitate? Or do you totally ignore what God is saying to you? 
The words of Jesus, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Have you ever done something wrong, and God convicted you of what you did, and he's told you you need to make it right? Like um, miscounting your score at a croquet game? Um, and as I was laying in bed this morning, God actually woke me up and talked to me about it at 5.30 this morning and convicted me. And as I was thinking about it, I started thinking about our passage this morning and about Saul and about Saul's place. Remember, Saul started so high and he declined so quickly. And then this thought came to me. When Saul stopped listening to God, God stopped speaking to Saul. And I don't want to be Saul. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be Saul. When God convicts us of something, we need to make it right. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. When Jesus talks to you, how do you respond? It's a question we each need to ask ourselves. David responded with immediate obedience and returned to Judah. Verse 6. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with the spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Here now, men of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of husbands that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my spirit, my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Saul hears that David is back in Judah. And here we're seeing more of Saul's decline. He berates his officers. He has bribed them with land and with position so that they would be loyal to him. And now he accuses them of conspiring with David and Jonathan against him and none of them speak up. But there's one who's not a Benjaminite who does speak up. Verse 9. Then answered Dob the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, and Ahimelech the son of Ahitab. And he inquired of the Lord for him, and gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Dob speaks up. He recognizes an opportunity to gain favor with Saul, and he seizes the opportunity. And he tells Saul about the meeting that he saw earlier. And he adds a detail that we didn't know about before, that Ahimelech consulted with the Lord on behalf of David. Dog's implying that David and Ahimelech are working together. He saw through their ploy, and he tells Saul. Verse 11, Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitab, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitab. And he answered, Hear my, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword, and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Saul sends for the priests to come to him, and he accuses Ahimelech of conspiring with David against him. But note that he is especially furious that Ahimelech consulted God on behalf of David. Saul is remembering what it was like when God spoke through Samuel to him. And in his heart, he knows that God is no longer speaking to him. 
And I think he's yearning for those days when God did speak to him, when he heard the word of the Lord. Verse 14, Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is as faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard, and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all of this much or little. Ahimelech's defense is amazing. He starts not by defending himself, but by defending David. And he declares that David is your servant, faithful to you, your son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard, and highly respected. And only then does he defend himself. He says, I inquired of the Lord many times for David. I am loyal to you, Saul. I am your servant. And he proclaims that he's not a part of a plot to kill Saul. He was friends with David, but David would never have allowed any of them to kill Saul. Ahimelech stood up to Saul courageously, knowing that there would probably be consequences when he sided with David. But Saul only hears one word, conspiracy. Verse 16, And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood by him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Saul pronounces the death penalty on Ahimelech and on a family of priests. Saul will kill anyone who helps and collaborates with David. But his officers, they know Ahimelech, they know David, and they refuse to carry out his command. But there is one who will kill the priests of Yahweh. Verse 18, Then the king said to Dog, You turn and strike the priests. And Dog the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that the 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. Dog's the mercenary. He's the hired gun. He's loyal only to Saul. He takes his sword, and he kills 85 priests. And then he goes to the city of Nob, and he murders all the women, all the children, and all the livestock. Saul is declaring open warfare on the priests of the Lord. And by doing so, he's also declaring open warfare on the Lord, on God himself. Because to attack God's appointed leaders is to attack God. But there's something else going on in this, pa- in this paragraph. Remember the verses that we read earlier? about that unnamed prophet who spoke to Eli. And Eli was told, because of your actions, because you scorned me, and because of the actions of your sons, these things will happen. Your sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will die on the same day. All your family will die by the sword, and one will escape. And here we see the fulfillment of that prophecy against the house of Eli. The first part was fulfilled when Hophni and Phinehas died on the same day. Now we see the family of Eli dying by the sword. A whole family of priests killed. And their death goes back to that prophecy that was made decades earlier. Back to the consequences for what Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas did. It's a hard story to understand. It is. It's a hard story. But there are two things out of this story that I do understand. First of all, when God declares that something will happen, 
it does happen. The word that was spoken to Eli came to pass. And the second thing that I understand from these verses, when we sin, there are consequences. Always. There are always consequences to sin. Now remember the third part of that prophecy. One will escape the slaughter. Look at verse 20. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab named Abiathar, escaped and fled to David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Dog the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's household. Stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall find safekeeping. Here's that one survivor, the one who escapes the carnage. He knew that David and his father were allies, so he ran to David. David blames himself for the deaths of those priests, when really it was Saul and Dog who were the ones who killed them. He asks Abiathar to join him, puts him under his protection. And notice the difference between Saul and David. Saul kills the priests of the Lord. David protects the priests of the Lord. Two fascinating chapters. A lot has happened. But look at David. Look at his life. He's on an incredible high. Probably a teen when he killed Goliath. And it seemed for David at that time like everything was going great. He was on the fast track to becoming someone special. A captain in Saul's army, commander of the royal bodyguard, the king's musician, best friends with Prince Jonathan, married to Princess Michael, loved by his men, friend of Samuel, anointed to be the next king. Sure is a long way from being a shepherd out in the field, isn't it? What an amazing rags-to-riches story until things started to go wrong and until everything fell apart. In a very short time, everything was gone and David was running for his life. And David has gone from the top of the world to the lowest of lows, from the best that life could offer to nothing but the clothes on his back. And yet in the midst of this severe trial, in the midst of the most horrible betrayal, there's one thing that does not change. David does not turn his back on God. David does not blame God. Even at the lowest of the lows, he continues to trust in God because God is faithful. Our God is a God who keeps his word. Our God is a God who will stand with us. Remember the words of Paul. If God is for us, who can be against us? No matter what comes our way, God will be faithful to us. And I hope I'm wrong here, but I wonder if days are coming in Canada when it will be much harder to live free as a Christian. I wonder if persecution is coming for all who are courageous enough to stand up and say that they are a follower of Jesus. As we go through trials, never forget, God is faithful. If persecution comes, God is faithful. The word of the Lord, I will never leave you or forsake you. The words of Jesus, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Take courage. Our God is faithful.